welcome to Energy and Utilities' first podcast. The newest multimedia platform Energy and Utilities is adopting to bring you the latest insight, commentary and expert analysis on the region's energy sector. I'm Andrew Roscoe, Editor for Energy and Utilities. And for our first podcast, we're going to bring you the highlights from our recent programme of three webinars, looking at the impact of the COVID-19 outbreak on key areas of the Middle East energy sector. Before our first webinar, we spoke to some of the key figures from some of the companies involved with delivering the region's largest energy projects. I was keen to find out what impact COVID-19 is having on some of the region's largest energy projects and whether financing will be available for future schemes. Rajat Nanda, Chief Investment Officer of the region's largest developer, Aquapower, gave some insight into what is happening with Aquapower's projects and also discuss whether liquidity would be available for future schemes. The truth of the matter is both these two economies, while they are heavily reliant on oil and gas, but we all need to understand there is liquidity in the global market despite this crisis, and it is a question of whether that liquidity through policy measures can it be attracted into these economies to continue with the growth plans, with the infrastructure development, and all the other social developments that these countries have committed to? And there, I think we need to a little bit also go into a few of the details. For example, the policy measures in the context of countries like Saudi, UAE, there is a lot of cushion in the fiscal system, in allowing for fiscal measures to be taken, for stimulus to be put in place, and for these countries to actually go, given their strong creditworthiness, to raise money in the international global market. We have just in last week $24 billion in a span of one week being raised by three of these countries in the first bucket that I had outlined. Against an order book, which were uh, for the three countries uh, put together, north of $100 billion. And mind you, in the midst of all of this crisis, the GCC was able to establish the longest maturity, 40 years, which Saudi did as the last of the three that uh, raised uh, funding from the international market. And the premiums that they are paying, given the dislocation in the market, is nothing significant. In fact, while uh, countries like Qatar and uh, UAE pay 30, 35 basis points uh, on an average of new issue uh, premium during the last week of issuances. The Saudi, which was the last one, they didn't pay even any uh, premium for the long end of the maturity under which they raised money. Now, this money, which is all raised and will continue to be raised during the next several months in order to address budgetary imbalances that will flow because of these uh, lower oil prices, will eventually find its way back to the social sector, to the infrastructure sector, and will continue, may not be with exactly the same rhyme and rhythm, but pretty much close to the same level of intensity with which policy decisions have been taken over the last couple of years towards the development of these countries. So, in general, I think oil prices has a little bit of a dichotomy in terms of impact. You will have countries like Oman and Bahrain, 
who don't have a lot of reserves right now. There is huge imbalance in terms of fiscal constraints for these economies. And their ability to continue with the infrastructure development that was in the horizon, let's say, till three months back or four months back, will definitely get affected in some way or the other. Whereas for the other bucket of uh, nations and countries, which are still economically sound, still policy cushions, they will be able to continue with the development plans once the market a little bit stabilizes. Synergy Consulting is advising clients and developers on some of the largest energy and water projects in the region. I asked the Chief Operating Officer, Anand Rohatki, what impact COVID-19 is having on projects currently and what he expects the impact to be on financing projects in the short and longer term. Move forward fairly seamlessly. We've seen most clients, both on, you know, on the optical side as well as the bidder side, to move forward on these projects. So, so they are they are moving on stream. Obviously, certain bid timelines have been extended, given the restrictions around travel. But apart from that, we've not seen any any ripples in the short term. In the medium term, you know, the projects which we were expecting, let's say in Q2, since these were based on existing or very near demand, you know, our current estimate is that these will move forward. There will be a couple of weeks, a couple of months of delay depending upon the off-taker on what position they would like to take vis-a-vis the whole coronavirus crisis. But, uh, you know, that should move forward. One element we are not able to put a finger on is the long-term projects or transactions, you know, which are a couple of quarters away. You know, we are conscious that the current crisis will result in an economic impact, which in turn will impact the consumption of utilities. Whether does that push the demand curves further into future, and if it does, by how many quarters or how many years is something which you're not able to guess right now. You know, while I say that, you know, there are some unique features in the current market as well. There are quite a few off-takers who've taken a, a aggressive stand to push things forward. Like as Rajit rightly said, Saudi Arabia is a unique position right now where both Rebdo on the renewable program as well as, well as SWPC on the water waste water program kind of have decided to push forward their projects. Yes, they are conscious of the current situation, but they're also trying to see how they can continue advancing without causing too much of delay, but being conscious of challenges developers are facing in the current environment. Intertwined with the supply chain and financial challenges facing every company involved in the energy sector, fulfilling contractual obligations is a key concern for clients, developers and contractors all throughout the supply chain. I asked Rob Harker, partner from law firm DLA Piper, what the legal implications of COVID-19 outbreak has been on the energy sector and whether force majeure provisions were being enacted. When all of this kicked off and governments globally started instituting their own form of lockdown or restrictions on travel, I think it became apparent to developers, lenders, government procurers, that there would be an impact. And naturally, you then look at your documents and you'd say, are they fit for purpose? What's clear is we will be entering a period of uncertainty, and that period itself is uncertain. I mean, Rajat hit on a very good point that luckily, particularly in this region and the projects that we've been talking about, whether it's the water or renewables projects in 
Saudi or elsewhere, these are very, very well-structured documents which include detailed provisions that, that should be able to handle these types of supervening events and events and circumstances that naturally flow from these type of events. So in terms of the initial impact from clients, that was looking at the documentation and a lot of these type of provisions are very much fact-based. You know, as I mentioned, it depends on the factual circumstances of where is the project, at what stage is the project. I mean, that's absolutely crucial. I'll come to that in just a second because the stage of the project often dictates the extent to which you will be able to make changes or you should make changes to your documents. So what is the fact pattern? And that obviously is wholly dependent on the jurisdiction in which you're, um, you're operating and the type of developments that we see in terms of restrictions that the governments are imposing. And then what contractual provisions are in place? And then finally, what does the actual law say? So in certain jurisdictions, particularly the civil code and jurisdictions that have a, a civil law tradition, so like the UAE and many other countries in the region, you will have a doctrine of force majeure or similar type of codified provision that deals with these types of issues. Energy and Utilities is delighted to announce the launch of Global Energy and Utilities Digital Week. Running from the 10th to the 13th of August, the Digital Week will host a series of global and region-specific content, analysis and debate from key decision makers and companies in your sector. Please visit energy-utilities.com to find out more information and how your company can get involved. For the second instalment of the webinar series, Energy and Utilities invited representatives from government, developer and the financing communities to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the region's renewable energy aspirations. I asked Suresh Bashkar, Regional Vice President of Business Development for Engie, what he felt the impact of COVID-19 would be in the region's ambitious renewable energy programmes. The overriding theme here is that the renewable projects are being pursued by Middle Eastern countries and GCC in particular for a variety of reasons, you know, and many of those reasons remain valid even in these difficult times. So, for example, renewable projects are being pursued under a PPP framework, public-private partnership framework, or sometimes 100% private partnership, you know, and relying on project financing. So it's not applicable to renewable projects alone, but it can be applied on any infrastructure, but it's also true for renewable projects. So these kind of projects are a way to, you know, diversify or dip into alternate pool of capital so that... Uh, capital allocation by the host country can be diverted for more pressing needs, you know. So that's still valid in this case because the framework under which uh, the renewable project is being pursued or a renewable project is capacity is being added on is very much relevant, perhaps even more relevant in these troubled times when there is liquidity constraints and social needs to be met. That's first point. Second point, I think the renewable projects has been well established now, has achieved grid parity, and sometimes I think Prendit talked about the increased cost of capital is still at a discount to the alternate uh, power source. So 
in a way, it has a positive impact on the balance sheet of the utilities. So there's a compelling economic needs that still should persist and that should feed into the positive mood about pursuing uh, renewable projects. Brendan Cronin, head of the Middle East for management consulting firm AFRI, identified some of the markets in the Gulf that he expected to do well in terms of delivering renewable projects and others that may struggle in the face of COVID-19. I think it's a bit of a follow-on from the, the slide I had on, on you know, project financing. I think, you know, for countries like Saudi and Abu Dhabi, where the cost of capital for those projects is going to be low, I still think they're going to be extremely good value, those renewable projects, and they will proceed. I think Oman is probably going to need to pause its renewable program because I think that... Uh, they are not going to be able to, you know, the, the bidders for those, those projects are not going to be able to raise finance and give OPWP a competitive price. So I think it's a bit of a mixed bag, but it kind of follows on. I think the big, stronger markets, as I said, particularly Saudi and Abu Dhabi, is where we've seen the most activity. I think they will be continuing, but there'll be at least a pause in Oman, I would imagine. While in the past, a sharp fall in oil price often led to renewable energy projects being put in the back burner, Mohamed Atif regional head for energy consultant DNV Energy, is very positive about the long-term fundamentals for renewable projects in the region. It's a very, very interesting time because normally when you're experiencing or you're right in the middle of, you know, such calamities as, as COVID-19 and, and economic prices sort of headed in a more deflationary trend, it's very, very difficult to look beyond one month or two months you know, let alone a, a few years. But I think, as has happened uh, historically, that uh, in a year's time or a few years' time, when you look at the sort of the price chart, we'll see this period as a, on the long-term chart, a, a blip. And in general, what I mean by that is the medium-term trajectory of renewables investments, uh, the business case, as Brendan mentioned, as you mentioned as well, is still there. The long-term commitments are still there. Those countries that were also mentioned, yes, I would say projects are moving forward, perhaps a little bit slower than in some cases they may have done, but still they are moving forwards. The biggest challenge that we face at the moment is the, the short-term demand impacts, both maximum demand and, and just general growth in consumption. Nevertheless, as we've seen uh, in the last few years, there has been a continuing decoupling of the power sector versus hydrocarbons. Um, and also between crude oil and gas. So first it was between crude oil and gas, and now more so between hydrocarbons and the power sector. Therefore, I think more and more decisions, unlike in the past, more and more decisions in the power sector continue to be made independent of what's happening in the particular crude oil markets. It's more an issue of from a technical perspective, it's a logistical issue. Uh, initially, there was a shutdown in China that stopped a lot of contracts being signed and, and movement with EPC contractors, as you know, very active in the region. Now we're having an issue of sort of on the demand side, short term perhaps, plus government exchequers with the, uh, the lower oil price. But in general, we still see this as actually a great period and we still see a, a lot of activity going into integrating these renewables, going integrating storage and hence for the, on a, from a global perspective, based upon the uh, decoupling that I mentioned, I still see the cost curve continuing to trend downward. 
in the storage sector as well. Possibly not as quickly. The reason for that is the speed with which we uptake electric vehicles, electrification of transport. Again, these are global trends, so we can segment them to the region, but the price curves are impacted globally. So I think there's a temporary slowdown, but in general, there's a government policy wants to continue to move away from these big fluctuations and, and shocks. The energy transition and decarbonization is imperative. And as you will all have seen recently, IRENA released their figures where continued deployment of renewables could have an impact of plus $95 billion or, or, or more on the economies of the region. So short term, yes, there are some decision issues. There are some price signals. Medium term, I believe we continue to move forward. But long term, I think it's one direction. With the vast majority of the region's renewable energy projects being privately financed, P. McNair, Head of Client Coverage for HSBC Bank, discussed the impact of COVID-19 on the region's economies and banks, and what she felt would be the impact on liquidity for funding clean energy projects in the short term and also post-pandemic. Countries across the region also have acted quickly to contain the effect of the virus. However, as we all know, these steps have had an impact on a range of sectors, uh, not least travel and trade, which have been uh, the heavy blow to both supply and demand. And the loss of income at various levels of the region's economies will put pressure on uh, liquidity as we have begun to observe from a banking point of view. To offset this, as we know, central banks across the region have implemented a number of measures to boost liquidity by easing capital requirements and expanding repo operations, while also supporting the private sector by requiring banks to offer payment holidays and through the provision of new low-cost funding. State ownership of some of the region's largest banks give policymakers additional capacity to provide direct funding. And as I see, on a day-to-day basis, we are processing a high volume of incremental short-term liquidity facilities and continue to provide extensive support to existing customer base. At HSBC, we have adopted a balanced approach to new money requests, clearly. It's not necessarily a question of liquidity, but we are exercising extra due diligence, as we should. Now, while these are challenging times, it's all important to remember that the region has been through difficult periods before. We don't see any current evidence of uh, green projects being put on hold, and that resonates a lot of the comments by my fellow panelists. Many of the regional projects are on long-term PTR agreements with agreed pricing terms. So any liquidity issue should not impact the existing projects is how we see it and which, which have either reached financial close or are in development. Now, clearly, the current low gas prices may impact future appetite for renewable projects as the bulk of electricity projection in the region is based on gas. And this will obviously be in direct competition with future renewable energy projects. And with the decreasing economic activity, electricity consumption rates will plateau in the near term, which we believe will create even less demand for renewables. That said, all the countries in this region have stated clear renewable energy targets, and there is nothing to suggest that they will amend these targets. And indeed, we feel that crises such as this are an important opportunity to refocus on long-term sustainability. Instead of waiting for the crisis to pass, governments and energy companies should take action today to reinforce long-discussed reforms to become even more resilient and less reliant on fossil fuels. 
One area, though, where we may see an immediate decline is in the small-scale renewable development space across corporates and residents. This is probably where we will see impact of reduced liquidity and deteriorating economic conditions given the upfront costs involved and the increasing competitiveness of fossil fuel energy. Developing renewable energy in the Middle East is not just about diversifying energy resources. Many of the region's governments are undertaking ambitious economic reform programmes in which they're seeking to diversify their industrial sectors away from a dependence on oil and gas. Alex Hernandez from Saudi Arabia's Industrial Clusters Programme told us about what the Kingdom was doing in terms of developing a sustainable supply chain and a manufacturing base for PV solar components. We are looking to, to build a, a competitive industry, so for the future projects will be also a competitive tendering that will be allowing project developers to be awarded the projects. We are, as you, as you say, in charge of the 70% of the, of the portfolio, and Redo is, is, is developing 30% remaining. But for us, it's important localized manufacturing. That's the reason there is a strong local content requirement for that will increase with time. We want to ensure that we generate jobs in Kingdom and also we want to increase the contribution to GDP from the industry, from renewables. So that's our main target is to develop a sustainable industry. And to do this, we have to guarantee that it's a, a competitive one. To wrap up the webinar series, the third instalment looked at digitalisation in the energy sector. Along with the energy transition and the increasing role of private finance in developing power infrastructure, digitalisation of the region's power plants and networks all the way through to distribution of electricity is a key theme emerging in the Middle East power sector. To get the topic started, Michael Wilkinson from DNV spoke about what we exactly mean by digitalization and also spoke about a recent survey DNV had completed looking at digitalization and the future of energy. In my mind, I see a progression between what I call digitization, which might be making things digital, digitalization, which is the business opportunities that result from that, and then digital transformation, which is really about changing the way that your business operates in response to, to digitalization and digitization. So if digitalization is the business opportunities resulting from digital technology, what do we mean by that digital technology? I think that it means different things in different industries. But generally, I think we can define it as the impact of computers, connectivity between those computers, sensors and data, but also increasingly important and relevant is the software. And in there, I might include artificial intelligence and machine learning as well. We conducted a study called Digitalization the Future of Energy. We interviewed, I think, five customers or participants within the energy industry in detail. So these are people who operate assets, people who 
supply components into the power and renewable industry. And then we also had nearly 2,000 people who responded from across the power and renewables industry to our, uh, our survey. So this is um, wind and solar generation, uh, transmission and distribution, but also uh, energy storage, energy finance, and energy management as well. So the spectrum of clean energy and transmission and distribution technologies. I wanted to just pull out a few highlights from that study, which I think are insightful, and I think give us a bit of a sense of what the state of the industry is, and then that might then lead into some of the thoughts that some of the other panelists have about the impact of digital technology. So first of all, 87% of power and renewables respondents highlighted that they do have a digital strategy. And in fact, 41% said that digitalization is core to their publicly stated strategy. So that's telling us that digitalization is clearly relevant and important. And like I say, I think it'd be interesting to hear how that's become more or, or, or how that has changed in, in the last few weeks. 89% of companies are using digitalization for improving efficiency, followed by reducing costs and then also creating new products and services. 71% when thinking about the skills that they need, uh, they highlighted that 71% need employees with combined data and domain knowledge. It's this combination of the engineering skills, but also uh, the, the data and technology skills. But really, for me, one of the most interesting features of the study was that 41% said that the biggest barrier to implementing their digital strategy was actually a lack of digital mindset. So this is really showing us that digitalization is a combination of technology plus people. And there's a, an interesting cartoon you might have seen going around, which highlights discussion between two people and saying, so what helped to push through your digital strategy? Was it the CEO? No. Was it your chief digital officer? No. Was it COVID-19? Yes. So I think in many ways we've been forced to, uh, to rapidly accelerate the rollout of our of our digital transformation. After highlighting the importance of adopting a digital mindset if companies are to succeed with digitalization programs, Michael fielded a question from the audience on what can companies do to prepare their workforce to embrace digitalization and maximize the returns? We asked people what, what is the top barrier to implementing digital technology or digitalization within your organization in power and renewables. And yes, you're absolutely right, 41% said that lack of digital mindset is important there. That for me, I just find absolutely fascinating because you know, how do you define what digital mindset is? It's absolutely about the awareness and familiarity with the technology. Actually, I think it's more than that. I think it's about sort of open-mindedness or ability to embrace new ways of working. And absolutely, the technology is clearly one significant part of it. But it is this mindset or this, this willingness and flexibility, I think actually is probably a good way to describe it, this flexibility that people have in their way of working. And that absolutely varies according to the profile of the workforce within the organization. So depending on the age profile, but also the skills profile that people have. Things that were really strongly highlighted was the ability for or familiarity with data science. So data analytics playing an increasingly important role within power and renewables. But in addition to that, again, there were these people highlighted like creativity, so creative problem solving. 
the application of digital technology into these new scenarios. So it is absolutely a, a sort of people problem, shall we say. You can't really change an organization's culture and way of working overnight. I think that is absolutely something that you need to design your organization efficiently to cope with. You need to have the habits and the routines that people use really right their sort of day-to-day level, what are, you know, how are people working in a way which embraces digital technology? And then by having your company architecture right, your routines right, then you can start to change the culture. And that culture change, I think, has to come right from the top. You know, it needs the executives, the C-level executives on board and driving it and pushing it and seeing the benefits of it. But it has to filter you know, down to line managers and right through the organisation. Expanding on what Michael Wilkinson was talking about, Schneider Electric's Ahmed Fatin talked about the changes he is seeing in terms of perceptions of digitalization and adopting a digital mindset, and what still needs to be done by companies in the energy sector to ensure that digitalization initiatives are successful. Uh, two points, actually. The first point, I think that we are in the perfect point to change the mindset at this point of time. If someone told me four or five months ago that 70% of the workforce will be working from home efficiently, I wouldn't believe. But the reality of today, that it is happening, there is a disruption that happened in a certain way that enforced the change, and yes, it's happening today. And this changed completely the behavior of many people and made a lot of people accept a severe change in the way that they are working, and they adapted successfully, and they are working efficiently. This is the first part. The second part, is that this is the importance of what we call the uh, pilots and the hybrid systems. Because to change the mindset, yes, in the normal situations, you cannot change the mass mindset at one point of time. You can start with certain pilots, small projects. Sometimes you can have hybrid systems that can allow you to work, for example, remotely and locally, so that the people can get confidence and that can get used to the idea step by step. That is allowing to smooth the transition and make the transition much easier for the people and change gradually the mindset of the SAP's Rui D'Souza spoke about the changing nature of the workplace as a result of COVID-19 and what digitalization technologies could be employed to ensure companies remain agile and able to meet their customers' needs. He then went on to discuss the importance of software and data to enable employees to harness the benefits of digitalization and ensure that companies maximize the benefits of going digital. One reaction that I see is that the workforce is very agile, right? You know, now everybody's working from home, everybody is using Teams, Zoom, as if it's almost second nature, something unthinkable a few months ago. The other thing is that our software needs to have the right interface, something intuitive that people can click naturally, just as my kids are playing with the tablets and, you know, computer games and et cetera, without ever reading instructions. The same needs to happen with the software, right? You only change mindsets at the front line in maintenance operations, if you have, for example, a tablet that has all the relevant information about the asset at the fingertips, you start changing the mindsets when there is a clear need, just as COVID forces us to work from home. But when the need is about, you know, how to do more efficient operations, maintenance, etc., and you've got information in a way available, in a way you never did that, it is up to us, representatives of different organizations that build hardware as well as software to really 
focus on the customer on needs and ensure that this interface will enable an uptake on digitalization. I think that this comes back, I think, to the point that this is about people as well. And, you know, there's lots of software that exists, which is, let's say, built by engineers, uh, for engineers. And if you actually want people to adopt it and use it and build it into their routines in how they work day to day, then this user experience, this UI and UX become absolutely uh, critical. And I think that's how sort of soft skills which are important. To wrap up the webinar, Michael Wilkinson answered a question from the audience on the impact of digitalization on the renewable energy sector, and also looked at some of the applications of digital technology in the power and renewable sector. In many ways, I think that the renewables industry was born digital, you know, so in, in many places, renewables came into prominence in very recent times. And if you buy a wind turbine now, it comes with a SCADA system built in and access to the data is part of normal operations. I think that there are many good solutions. In terms of integration, though, I think that's a really interesting challenge. And I think as we see an increase in penetration of renewables, which is happening in the vast majority of markets, then the ability to remotely dispatch and control these assets in a much more automated and dynamic way than we can at present. That becomes increasingly important. And I know that there are many industry bodies and governmental organizations who identify this as a clear challenge and are working towards finding efficient but also effective solutions. This wraps up Energy and Utilities first podcast. I hope you enjoyed the content and found it useful. And we look forward to welcoming you for our next podcast and also our future webinar series, which will be coming soon. Please don't forget to check out www.energy-utilities.com for all your latest news and analysis on the region's energy sector. Goodbye for now. Speak to you soon.